Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Warning, the Savage Nation contains adult language, adult content, psychological nudity. Listener discretion is advised. And now, the world's most exciting podcast, The Savage Nation, home of borders, language, culture, and here he is, New York Times best-selling author and National Radio Hall of Fame inductee, Michael Savage. Welcome to the free version of the Michael Savage podcast, and I'm going to keep it free for all of you. But there are many of you who would love to be able to listen to my show without any ads. I love ads, but many of you want to listen to the podcast free of ads. So we created something for you, a solution. We call it the Savage Premium. For less than the price of one flat, tasteless beer at your local bar, you can receive access to all of my podcasts going back years ad-free for just $3.99. That's at $3.99 a month. You'll get not only my ad-free podcast, but you will also occasionally receive access to material that is exclusive for members only. And I'm going to give you the list in a minute of what you've, what you've missed. You're going to get an occasional monologue from me, maybe a reading from one of my novels, sneak peeks of interviews before anyone else hears them, archive pieces dating back to 1994. Many things that come up, you're going to get exclusive access to Michael Savage material. Details can be seen on my website, michaelsavage.com. And if you want to join... All you got to do is go to glow.fm and search Savage Premium. That's glow.fm and search Savage Premium. Now, you will always have access to my free weekly podcast. I want to be clear about that. That's my promise to you. But if you want less ads and more Savage, join the Savage Premium Club today and never miss a spoken word of mine. It's glow.fm slash Savage Premium. You can find it on michaelsavage.com. And here's some of the stuff that you have missed so far. Michael Savage reading from his best-selling novel, Countdown to Mecca. My words, my voice. Savage reads from one of his lost journals, Fiji, 1968. Savage's first drive-time show, Hour One. My interview with the Jewish gangster, very popular. I uh, read from my first written, published article, Who Was at the Helm? From 1965, it's heard nowhere but on my premium site. I read passages from my novel, Abuse of Power. Uh, we replayed Fat Al's Tuna. My Savage show from 324.94, the earliest show in the archive, 324.94. My interview with Donald Trump from 110.2011. 110.2011, while Mark Levin was mocking him and Sean Hannity was mocking him uh, and the others were mocking him, I was interviewing Trump much more. And remember, subscribers also get ad-free podcasts every week. The cost is less than a beer at a bar, and you get a better buzz with, with the Savage Premium. So go to, go to glow.fm slash Savage Premium for full access to ad-free podcasts and exclusive sound you'll not hear anywhere else. Thank you very much. 
Do you ever feel lonely? Well, you're not alone. A new national survey shows that many Americans are lonely. A condition that is so common, you actually may not think of it as a mental health problem. We're talking about loneliness. A new study from Cigna says most Americans feel lonely. Previously published research suggests there could be a link between being lonely and your overall Loneliness health. Loneliness isn't, that's not how that's described in this uh, survey here, where it talks about people, they're among other people, but they just don't feel connected to those folks. They don't have those bonds or perhaps they feel poorly understood. Uh All right, welcome to the Michael Savage podcast. Today we're talking about the machinery of loneliness, the weaponization of loneliness, how loneliness is used by governments, how tyrants stoke our fear of isolation, to silence, divide, and conquer us. And we're speaking with a great guest, Stella Morabato, on this topic. It's the power of um, the government to drive us mad into loneliness. And this is perhaps the loneliest time of the year for most Americans. It's uh, after Thanksgiving, it's before Christmas. Many people don't have families anymore, don't see their families. And what we're talking about today is the weaponization of loneliness. And this book, this discussion today on the Michael Savage podcast offers you the first deep dive into how power elites weaponize the fear of loneliness to enforce social conformity and wage a war on the private sphere of our lives. For example, do you keep your opinions to yourself now because you're afraid people will reject you? Of course you do. Do you sign on to a cause just because everyone around you acts like it's the right thing to do? Of course you do. Well, welcome to the weaponization of loneliness. Tyrants of all stripes want to tell you what to believe and how to live your life. And they get away with it by using the most potent weapon at their disposal, which is your fear of being ostracized. Her book explains how dictators from the French Revolution to the Communist Party of China, I would say even to America today, run by our globalists, atomize us in order to control us. And we fall for it because of our need to connect with others and our fear of social rejection. We are so hardwired to want to fit in that they trigger our conformity impulse. Do I have your attention now? These dynamics are so powerful, they can even cause us to comply with evil orders. It's the conformity that I'm talking about. And so we're going to learn how governments socially isolate us, how big tech, big media, big government, academia, Hollywood, and the corporate world exploit our terror of social isolation. You know that's true. We all know that cancel culture is silencing our voices by deplatforming or demonizing us. And we're going to talk about similarities throughout history. Many conservatives in this country are hesitant to express their views. How are we going to change this? Do you believe that such fears are heightened today? I do. We're not just perceiving it. And so we're going to learn about who are the most aggressive of these tyrants and how they do it. And how this nation shifted from being freedom-loving to rule-abiding. We're going to tie it into the French Revolution We're going to go back to John Dewey and his Humanist Manifesto. We're going to discuss in passing the Frankfurt School, Robespierre, all this and more on the machinery of loneliness with Stella Morabato, on the weaponization of loneliness, on the loneliest time of the year, today and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, on the one and only Michael Savage Podcast. Thanks for listening. Good morning. How are you today? I'm good. How are you doing? We Thank did you for interview. having me. How long ago did we do the last interview? It was great. I remember that. Oh, my goodness. It was before the 2020 election. 
Oh it my was god! Like a few months before, and well, uh, while I was still I on ra- radio interview, I think before I was doing yeah. podcasts. I don't know. Do you live in the Bay Area? No, I actually uh, I'm a transplant to the East Coast from Southern California. I grew up, I was born and raised in a suburb. Well, I was born in Los Angeles. I was raised in a suburb of Los Angeles. I went to the University of Southern California. Um, and uh, but then I moved out here in 80, 81. And, um, you know, that's when I started working at the CIA as a, a you know, an intelligence analyst, especially dealing with issues like media analysis and propaganda. You come out of the CIA, huh? Well, that was a uh, that was during the Reagan years, actually. But yes, uh-huh. uh, but but it had already. I mean, I already had lots of uh, dealings with people in there who were definitely uh, far left. So wow. uh, it was gone. I mean, it was going uh, back then. But um, but in any case, I was still focused on like Soviet media. Uh, you know the the you know the what came out of Pravda and all that and that analyzing that sort of stuff and, and uh, disinformation, all that. And um, so then, you know, later on, I started a family, had kids. I ended up, um, you know, staying home, raising my family, but I was really zeroing in on all of these things, all of these agendas in the United States. So um, you've been, so you've been deeply, 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 involved and a student of this digression from our basic founding principles, especially those of individual liberty and freedom, to put it in very, very basic, simple terms. Do you you say, though, that there's a we know there's a reaction to the 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 push against those of us who are still individuals? I mean, you stand up to them. The school board show the average people will also have a breaking point and stand up to them. Do You think it's enough people standing up? To actually reverse what's going on well at the moment you need more but as you know if people can let go of that because there's really uh not a lot to to lose at this point you feel like you have a lot to lose if they're going to be right. platformed or lose your job or whatever but ultimately if you end up in a state of solitary confinement you know th- there really isn't much to lose by speaking up but you know you use your judgment but if enough people um do that and embolden others it creates and this is what the left or you call power elites are so fearful of they are extremely fearful of uh an opinion cascade that turns on them Mm. and how does that happen it happens through the private sphere it happens through actual conversation and 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 witnessing people who uh stand up to this stuff I mean, if you, uh, I have a section in my book where I talk about the conformity impulse and all the science and research that was done, especially in the 1950s, starting with Solomon Ash, where people were fearful of uh, giving the wrong answer uh, or giving Mm. the correct answer for the length of the line because everybody else was giving the incorrect answer. So they went along with it. And yeah, and later on, he had a student named Stanley Milgram who did those famous shock experiments to show that, no, the Americans were not immune to this Nazi kind of uh, dynamic. I remember. And, yes. and so, um, but what the interesting thing, going back to Solomon Ash, 
is he did a variation on his line experiment where people would uh, just pretend they would go along with the crowd about something like the length of a line. They gave the wrong answer just because everybody else was giving the wrong answer. Unbelievable. Nothing, nothing political about it. They were just didn't want to be in the minority. Yes. Well, he did a variation on that experiment, which was really interesting. He gave the subject a partner. There was one of the Confederates of the experiment would give the correct answer. And they go down the line. Everybody else gave the incorrect answer. And the subject, knowing that he had a partner, the, the conformity dropped like a rock because he knew there was one other person there who agreed with him. So, so if there's one person willing to stand up to the tyranny that we are experiencing, there'll be more than one. Others will stand up with that person. They should. Yeah, you can create these cascades. And that's what what the you know power elites are so afraid of. That's why they keep pushing for censorship and misinformation governance boards. They don't want people sharing facts and sharing misinformation truth. governance boards on, yeah. on 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 all the social media. Interesting misinformation governance boards. Isn't that something? It's a great topic. Stella Morabito on the weaponization of loneliness, how tyrants stoke our fear of isolation to silence, divide and conquer. Uh, loneliness is the new epidemic, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Um, well, before COVID, uh, there were all kinds of headlines about a loneliness epidemic and deaths of despair and and all of the mental health issues that went along with it, as well as physical health issues. I mean, severe social isolation creates all kinds of stress that can lead to all kinds of physical ailments as well. But uh, COVID just fast-tracked it all and enforced our isolation. So it's a book that you wrote on the weaponization of loneliness? Yes, it's a book that's been in the making for a while. Um, I've always been intrigued with issues of psychological manipulation and psychological warfare. And, um, you know, I, I was looking for like a common denominator, a common hmm. thread that ties together all of the really awful agenda items that come to pass. Mm. Uh, and and that's really what it is. When we self-censor, when people shut up about what they believe or, or they lie about what they believe in order to avoid that threat of ostracism or their fear of being rejected, um, that's what gives oxygen to all the bad agendas and all the bad events that have taken place in history. Well, it certainly comes to mind the minute you say that is the masks that we were forced to put on, the social oh. distancing, the the, the yeah. loss the loss of socialization from what went on for two years. And many people are looking back and saying it was unnecessary to the extent that it was imposed upon us. What's interesting to me, it, it, many people are calling it a pandemic. I don't want to go into that part of it. We know what, what the pandemic has done to the world, drive people apart put mm -hmm. us in our own little houses. We're afraid to even shake someone's hand, have dinner with them. I have a friend who will still not go to a restaurant and she's not a dumb person. She's afraid to be in a restaurant. Michael Savage, a host like no other. Have you become a victim of the timeshare trap? You think there's no way out? Well, Chuck McDowell, founder of Wesley Financial Group, has helped over 35,000 families out of financial hardship by getting them out of bad timeshares, and they may be able to help you too. Listen, if your timeshare agreement goes on forever, 
If you were told timeshares are a great investment or your maintenance fees will never go up, you need to get the facts about timeshare cancellation. For over 10 years, Wesley Financial Group has been dedicated to helping folks get out of a lifetime of debt by canceling their timeshares. So they created a free timeshare exit information kit that reveals how the timeshare industry works and your options for cancellation. To get your free timeshare exit information kit, simply go to iCancelTimeshare.com. That's iCancelTimeshare.com. I'll say it one more time, iCancelTimeshare.com. Thank you very much. iCancelTimeshare.com. Loneliness is defined as a feeling of being alone or lacking social connectedness. Other research has shown as well that loneliness impacts heart disease, diabetes, depression, substance use, and overall feelings of health. You say in your book how dictators from the French Revolution to the Communist Party of China to today's globalists aim to atomize us in order to control us. Now, I I know that that goes on here, but I'm curious about your statement about the French Revolution, because I've always been fascinated by the history of uh, that revolution and what it's done to the world until today, whether it be the revolution that followed the revolutions that followed in the Soviet Union or in Cambodia, all modeled on the French Revolution. And we have a mini French Revolution going on in America today, in my opinion. I don't know if you agree with that, but it looks very much like it to me. But but tell me about the French Revolution. How did they isolate people there? Well, I, you know, part of the thesis of my book includes something I call the machinery of loneliness, uh, which is used to kind of uh, uh, using or exploiting the fear, the primal fear of social isolation in order to trigger the conformity impulse and trigger compliance. Got it. And this machinery, in my view, includes what I call the three-legged stool of tyranny. Uh, And they didn't use these terms during the French Revolution, but they all existed. Identity politics, political correctness, and especially mob agitation to enforce it all, to enforce compliance. So they had this you know, um, this uh, the Jacobin reign of terror um, developed this uh, de-Christianization campaign where they started uh, by, you know, they they were going to create this new utopia, uh, this so-called Republic of Virtue based on, you know, all the Enlightenment ideas of reason and science and all this stuff. And uh, but in order to do that, they had to wipe out the old, just like now talked about wiping out the old. Sounds very much like occasional cortex in our cohorts today. That's exactly the model they're following, isn't it? uh, Very much so. I mean, uh, identity politics can be just, uh, you know, something as, quote, simple as saying, hey, you're an enemy of the people. You're an enemy of the revolution. Uh, Today, we have all kinds of it's it's all based on demonization. And, you know, oppressor versus victim and, you know, and then demonizing people with labels. Well, the FBI has said the greatest threat to America is white supremacy. They're still following that in the U.S. military. How is this even possible to go on? Oh, I know. I mean, you know, at some point it'll all implode. The question is how much damage gets done. Well, I wrote a book called Stop Mass Hysteria, and I've studied some of these movements and they all usually burn out. 
But the question is, how long does it take for it to burn out and how much damage is done before it burns out? Isn't that the absolutely? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, they they use all these components like identity politics, where they smear you use the term white supremacist. That's, (laughs) uh, you know, that really triggers. Nobody wants to be called you know, a white supremacist or a bigot or, you know, any of the other. Or MAGA. They're, they're using it on MAGA. Biden's saying not all Republican voters are MAGAs. He, he doesn't mean oh. MAGAs. We're MAGAs. But um, but That's anyone right. who anyone is a real MAGAR, according to Biden, is the enemy of America. It's not Black Lives Matter who burned cities to the ground, whole sections of cities to the ground. It's not Antifa who did all the damage. It's those who believe in borders, language and culture, nationalists, in other words, they're the real enemy to these globalists. Right, because uh, if people are allowed to have real conversations, that gets in the way of their agendas. And uh, so, uh, you know, identity politics, political correctness, which is uh, basically the kind of the instrument that's used to induce self-censorship. And then uh, people walk around. I know friends. I live in a very liberal county in, in outside of San Francisco. I've been socially isolated from the time I moved here, but I've never left because I love nature. I love the water and they're not going to take that away from me. So I've learned to live without a social life per se. And it's become second nature to me because I'm very internal anyway. I, I'd rather be left alone with my own thoughts or with nature rather than worrying about what people think of me. But it has a tremendous effect on a person to go in a restaurant and have to control what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Or people look at you like you're the bad guy because you mm-hmm. believe in America. You're the mm-hmm. bad guy because you're a Republican in a 90 percent Democrat county. You're no you're no good. The Savage Nation. It's savage on demand. Many, many of us are at least sometimes are feeling quite lonely, and many people actually are always feeling quite lonely, which is really important. It has physical health ramifications, mental health ramifications, and you could say that this rises to the level of true public health concern. There was an interesting article that says it all, Stella, the other day, the day after the Republicans had this one vote majority in the House, the New York Times comes out the next morning with the country's about to go into gridlock and the agenda, the important agenda is now going to be held in abeyance. I said, are they crazy? They're arguing for a one party system without even understanding. They're calling for totalitarianism. I think that goes to the core of your of your discussion in a way, doesn't it? Yes. No, they're calling for the end of real conversation. And um, and and just as Hannah Arendt wrote in her book, The Origins of a totalitarianism, uh, tyrants always need a sense of isolation to render people powerless when they feel disconnected uh, from others or or threatened to be disconnected. Uh, So, you know, that's how people are more easily controlled is when, um, when they're isolated. And you'll see this with even like cult leaders like Jim Jones, the first thing they do is they isolate their recruits. They, and in order to better propagandize them and they affect any other old relationships. Um, there's, well, you know, um, what bring, what comes to mind is there's a series on TV now about that Keith guy who's in prison now, 
who ran that cult. What what cult? What is his name? But he would isolate people. He had this huge following of devotees from Hollywood. Some people were came from wealthy families, including the heiress to the Seagram's fortune. Bronfman, you know who I'm talking about? That Keith guy. Oh, mm, it's I'm huge, sorry. But he would isolate people who would he he would he would isolate them if they had all defied him in any way. Mm-hmm. He put them in a room oh. and say, you've really violated the rules and you have to stay there until you're ready to come out. And one woman yeah, was nothing. in a room for two years. Oh, my goodness. No, I, no th- th- this is what he did. Very demoralizing. In fact, that is the essence. Keith Ranieri. OK, I can't really see. Oh, OK. What was that? Keith oh. Ranieri. Oh, this goes right to the core of your argument. Yeah. Now it rings a okay. bell. Yeah, he's not that well known in general conversation, but he was an example today of that kind of tyrannical cult leader on the order mm-hmm. of a Jim Jones. He didn't give them Kool-Aid and kill them, but he molested or had sex with most of them. He yeah. branded them. Stella, he branded them. He had a doctor brand the inner thigh of the women, Ew. burn their flesh. And when a woman would object, he would say to them, you don't want to burn for me. It's horrible. Now, this is this is a, a standard operating procedure of any kind of control freak. Uh, the, and, and they may not know consciously that that is, you know, how they operate in terms of, you know, isolating people in order to control them. But it is um, something that they would know instinctively, even if they don't know it consciously. And it's really the essence of what we call Stockholm syndrome to try to get the captive to bond with the captor. And uh, in all these utopian, radical utopian uh, revolutions, uh, you know, we see that that's really the the goal is to get people to um, bond with the mass state instead of families, friends, faith communities, or, you know, really true communities. As humans, we're social animals. You know, we're just, you know, the the naked ape. We're we're basically the naked ape. Desmond Morris wrote that book so many years ago. But apes are social creatures. They need to run in packs. So does man. Basically, we're not made to be alone. It's not a natural state for a person to be alone. So you take the Christian faith that has a congregation. The Jewish faith has a thing called a minion where 10 men, a minion of 10 would get together every morning to pray. That was a way of taking people away from the isolationism of the village life or whatever it might have been. That's all. That was all gone during COVID. They closed the churches in California Marble. and let the strip clubs stay open uh, mm-hmm. under this governor. You know, I'm curious. You say you write about tyrants telling us how to live our lives. Who are the worst aggressors in this age? I mean, I would think North Korea would be on the top of the list. Well, yeah, if you're looking at, you know, world class dictatorships. um, Yeah. North Korea, which is they call it the hermit kingdom because uh, it's so isolated. People don't really have access to any other ideas, any other thoughts. It's totally propagandized. And and it's got a very hardcore social credit system, which China has, of course, but uh, it's existed, I think, a lot longer in North Social Korea. Social credit mean, system. What is that? That's where your access to all goods and services, uh, education, housing, uh, you know, even food, but your job, uh, whether or not you can even own a pet, uh, you know, it, all of those things 
are based on your compliance, your political compliance. Who judges uh, whether you do the right thing? Who's who, who, who decides? Who's, I mean, it's just whoever this little core, this oligarchy, uh, whoever. So they uh, have little cadres running around in villages who give people social credits based upon their conformity to the government's edicts. Well, yes? and the way it works in well, the the way it works in China is you get you actually have a point system where you know if you lose points, you gain points. They've got like. I don't know how many million, uh, you know, face rec- facial recognition cameras, but um, are we on? Are we on the road to that here in America? Oh, sure, yeah. Well, I the mean, universities it, certainly practice it. The, yeah, these the cancel culture is certainly a big part of that, right? Throwing and also prof- getting rid of professors, distinguished professors, for mm-hmm. one word they don't like because one girl in the class became hysterical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's uh, censorship uh, from the top down is really what will get us there. Well, what gets us to censorship from the top down is self-censorship through political correctness. Uh, When we shut up about what we believe or lie about what we believe, we pave the way, we cultivate the ground for a top down censorship system like they're calling for the what they call misinformation governance. You're making me feel somewhat hopeless about the future. If we keep going down this road, it's all over. I mean, we're pretty far gone. We know that any kid who stands out in I have a friend as a kid who was 13 years old and. My friend, you know, is is not super conservative. He's more of a moderate guy. But he he, he his son had to do a class piece on how something about a, what is a nation? What is a nation? So you said, my son, Isaac, is going to talk about borders, language and culture. He's going to use your phrase, Michael. I said, oh, watch out, Dan, watch out for that one. Mm-hmm. Well, I said, why doesn't he define it as something else? He said, no, no, he's not afraid of them. He got a D on the on the on the exam. The teacher gave him a D and ostracized yeah. him for saying you can't define a nation by its borders, language and culture. So there it is. A little a, a 13 year old. In other words, you can't you can't express yourself. You can't uh, you know, discover ideas and and express ideas. Uh, well, you school. can if they're degenerated ideas. And if you're you have your right. mind, has, if your mind is fully tattooed. But that's uh, not really expressing an idea. I mean, if you're just parroting back, right? Uh, parroting back the propaganda. Stella, you must have an interesting background. I'd like to digress for a minute. How did you as an author, is that your profession author? Or is there another profession behind author? No, well, right now, that's what I do. I write, as you may know, I'm a senior contributor to The Federalist. And before I wrote this book, uh, The Weaponization of Loneliness. Oh, that's a good picture. Yeah. We better oh, make yeah. sure that my... Make sure my producer gets that. We'll use it on the podcast. Yeah, cover. that is the, um, the you know, the, the cover has um, Anthony Fauci in a in a vintage TV. <laughs> he I love pretty that much represents he represents the weaponization of loneliness, the enforcement of isolation. Yeah, so, well, he sure got away with it for quite a while. Well, and I think I fear still is. But, you know, you said this looks very hopeless. And sure, I mean, you know, we this is kind of the default uh, position of man. As you said, we're social creatures. We we really can't survive in isolation. So uh, that's <laughs> part you. of that's Well, in, in severe isolation, we can't. So that's part of why we, um, you know, we're hardwired to connect with other people, but mm. at the flip, 
the flip side of that is we have a very primal fear of being ostracized or, or separated. Yes. And that is even worse in today's environment where people where the family is so broken and and you don't have that private sphere of life uh, to fall back on uh, as easily, you know, children, especially today. Well, put. The Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw. The fear of, of loneliness is, is superseded by the fear of being ostracized, which is worse than being alone. Right? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not the same as solitude. Let's just call it like involuntary solitude. I mean, oh, solid. Oh, involuntary solitude. It's like solitary confinement. Right. I mean, uh, you know, where you're cut off from um, humanity. I mean, that's how oh, it God, feels. You're making me you're making me say I better I better I better reach out and create a social group. I've got to tell well, you something. What? Guess what I did? I moved to California in 1974 and I found the people to be strange. I'd come from New York. And there was a thing called vacuousness uh-huh. that was rampant in, in San Francisco. You talk to people and they wouldn't look at you. They would look over there. They would look over there. And then I met someone in the streets of North Beach, a good looking young guy who cracked up after two years from I don't know where he was, Eastern Europe. And he started wandering the streets saying, there's no continuum. There's no continuum. There's no continuum. I said, what are you talking about? He said, there's nothing here. There's no continuum, meaning there's no Continue. He came from a country where people talk to each other. I came yeah. from a New York where people communicated with each other. You knew what people thought they would tell you here. People were in the 70s afraid to communicate what they thought for fear of being ostracized mm-hmm. by the by the pack. And mm-hmm. look where we are today. Right. So it got so bad for me that I created a digital community called the Savage Nation on the radio. Mm-hmm. And that became a world I created. That was my community. And every day I'd speak with my world for three hours a day. And I felt part of something enormous. And it was something enormous. I literally created a digital nation. Mm-hmm. So what's interesting, Stella, is I'm now doing podcasts. I don't speak to an audience. I speak to a microphone, occasionally a guest as intelligent mm-hmm. as yourself. Other than that, it's pretty isolated doing podcasts. You're talking to yourself by and large. Well, that's yeah, that's a digital world. Uh, and it does have an isolating effect. I do discuss that a little bit in my book. Uh, well, actually, quite a bit in that first part mm-hmm. that um, the there are three, three things that are different from uh, the utopian revolutions of the past compared to where we are today. And uh, one is that it's global in scope. But the second one, which you touch on with doing the podcast and feeling isolated, talking to a microphone is, um, you know, that that the uh, communications technologies have exponentially taken off. And you probably have read some of the headlines about how this has affected youth who are just so connected with their devices. They're so. But I, but I become, but Stella, here's the strange part. I get up in the morning. I can't wait to go on social media. I cannot wait to communicate on Twitter and or Facebook with the stuff I post and the reactions I get. I actually read them Mm -hmm. and respond to some of them. It's a community. It's real. In other words, it's not fake. If someone reads what you wrote and responds to what you wrote with something they write, it is a form of communication. I mean, yes. it doesn't have the visceral nature of a 
of two people talking, but it's still a community. So it, it can't be totally disavowed as meaningless. Yeah, no, it's not. No, I'm not saying it's meaningless. I'm just saying that there is a layer of connection that is um, lost. I mean, we could say lost. That doesn't mean that you're not connected. I mean, you know, I talk on the phone to people I love and I feel connected. Uh, I'm so glad that the phone is there because there's 3,000 miles between us. I'm not saying that there's no disconnect. I'm just saying it's not the same as real life face to face. Of course uh, not. Sitting and having a meal, breaking bread with someone. Uh, Right. To make it very primal to the monkey thing again, uh when you're next to a person, you can scent them. You, you know, you smell them. I mean, I'm not making it a negative thing. Yeah. A person has a scent. You know, when I, when I lost my brother, when I was very young, I had the scent of my brother for years. I'd go in his drawers and smell the clothing that he left behind. that was washed Mm because the scent is such a profound element of the human being, the totality of the being we hear and we see, but we smell. And even if we kiss someone in a non-romantic way, which is very customary in Eastern Europe, by the way, a man kisses his son, a son kisses his father when they meet each other or the Italian with the kiss on the cheek. They're basically tasting each other in a crazy way. Yeah, it's a tactile. That's a tactile sense. Yeah. And uh, and so. I'm not saying we have to go back you know, 300 years or 200 years, but we need to be aware oh. of how these new technologies affect us and especially how they're affecting youth. I mean, there's been um, there, there's been studies and research done on on some of the disconnect. They're, they're becoming deeper and deeper into that virtual world to the point that they can't even have face to face conversations anymore. Well, look at these crypto crooks, these kids. They look like they're all amoral and asocial. This group that just ripped off these billions of dollars. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And the head of this crypto theft group had something strange to say. He said, this whole thing about ethics, this Western thing about ethics and values, it's really stuck in the past. It's meaningless. Wow. Now, I didn't hear that except just now from you, that quote. Oh, my and God. It, it's, I it's mind-blowing because uh, what it really means is that there's no, there should be, as though there shouldn't be any kind of a moral um, ground on which to walk, on which to think. And, and of course, that, you know, it's like a nothingness, just as you said before. There's no continuum there. There's no continuum. There's no anchor and, Ella, and I he, found the exact quote for you. Here it is. OK. Bankman Freed, who to me is the greatest con man in my lifetime. He exceeds Madoff. Bankman Freed in the interview unleashed a tirade against regulators. He called ethics, quote unquote, a dumb game. We woke Westerners play. Wow. He's the son of two Stanford law professors. Well, there you go. And his girlfriend. And they were both high on amphetamines most of the time, by the way, like like Hitler's uh, troops. They loved the amphetamines. They said it gave them clarity. So they're amoral millennial types, drug addicts, ripped everybody off and laughed at anyone who had a sense of ethics. And you know what I would add to that list, Um, even though it, it doesn't quite fit in there, but I think it's very true. Uh, they're also 
isolated. They would deny it because they still communicate supposedly with people. But isolation can create that sense of no continuum, that sense of, you know, you're you're unmoored from reality already. So you don't even know that uh, you don't even know that it's necessary for you to have any kind of, uh, you know, roots. So uh, you, yeah. you talk about your book is the weaponization of loneliness, right. which is the key question here is the key point really is the word weaponization. Right. We know that Joe Biden has been the worst of all modern presidents in weaponizing, in my opinion, uh, weaponizing loneliness and isolation by calling anyone who doesn't agree with his political orientation, which we all know what that is, as a bad person. This is coming up right from the campuses into Joe Biden's brain. Here's the president of the United States saying, if you're a magger, you're basically the most gravest threat to this society. It's yeah, hard to he, believe. It's hard to believe when you yeah, think about it. Well, that's, you know, he's condemned half of America uh, and probably. Well, no, he said that. regular Republicans aren't bad. He just said those who really believe in <laughs> in anything are the bad ones. Well, what he means are Republicans who vote for him. Uh, yeah, OK, you know. <laughs> good. Yeah, I get it. But uh, but that's what he means. I you know, it's uh, you know, and when it reaches that level where the you know, the president himself, uh, you know, as sentient as he may or may not be, uh, you know, states that half the country is, um, you know, somehow uh, anti-democracy. Uh, he's basically that's just all part and parcel of a vast demonization campaign. You can't call it anything else. It's right there. You can't, nobody can deny that. Home of Borders, Language, Culture, The Savage Nation. Ah, mm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. So your book is about the demon, basically the weaponization, which is the demonization. Was there a point when the country in your mind, shifted from loving the individualism, respecting individuals, when the country shifted from a freedom-loving country to one of such conformity? Oh, man, that is a hard one to pinpoint. I mean, you I'm sure you're very well aware of the Frankfurt School and cultural Marxism that planted down roots at Columbia University year, almost 100 years ago. And had the, you know, the idea that the war was not really economic, it was cultural, and they were going to do this long march through the institutions, which, of course, has come to pass. Uh, and uh, it, it, you know, that that's been going on for a very long time. Uh, the subversion of education. I mean, you could go back to well, even before John Dewey talked about education as something, you, you know, you just have to use it to kind of socially engineer the population, you know, pick winners and losers in the school and all that. It wasn't about real education. It was about creating this sort of utopian society. But it's so funny you, you mentioned John Dewey. Years, but pardon me? 
it's funny you mentioned John Dewey. I was making notes and I said, Robespierre would be one of the architects of this. Yeah. Okay. But then I remember when I entered Queens College in the City University of New York, it was in 1959. I was 16 years old or something like that. I didn't know politics at all. I had no idea anything. I really knew nothing about politics. My parents were immigrants. My father read five newspapers. He never went to beyond high school, but he was a well-read man in terms of newspapers, five newspapers a day. And I'd say to him, Dad, why are you reading five newspapers? He said, because they all have different opinions and I want to draw my own, what I want to make up my own mind. So he was a very smart man in that regard. But so I get to college and I take a course in education and the books that they were using were the teachings of John Dewey. I didn't know he was part of the school you're discussing. I thought he was a great. Oh, John Dewey. He sounds like a great guy. It's an American name. His name is John and it's Dewey. He sounds like a good guy and he's teaching good stuff. But he was actually teaching what you're saying. He's a descendant of the Frankfurt School. Well, yeah, he was also, he had this, uh, I forgot what it was called, some kind of a treatise on uh, religion as well, uh, Humanist Manifesto uh, oh. that he signed in 1933 that we had to move away but, uh, from uh, traditional religion and, and um, oh boy, yeah, that's yeah. True. so he was, he was, um, you know, really heavy duty, uh, you know, into what today they call progressivism. Um, wow. And and, you know, it was uh, and, and a lot of uh, so-called educators, I think, even including folks like Bill Ayers, look to him um, as, you know, kind of a model. I could be wrong about Bill Ayers, but a lot of the radical um, so-called educators, uh, educrats, uh, I would call them, are, um, you know, look to him as sort of the model, the beginning uh, of a lot of that. But the turning point itself, getting back to your original question. When did you know? When did this shift um, happen? I think it happened most dramatically uh, after a few years of the internet. You know, everybody thought the internet would keep you know bring us together, or we could talk to people all over the world and all that. Uh, but it also gave the opportunity uh, for big tech, once they got control, you know, total control over it, to try to control the narrative and the conversation. And then that you know, propagandizing when you don't hear any other point of view. It has a very corrupting influence, um, but uh, and, and very isolating as well. And and one other thing I would add, I, I'm kind of going off in different directions here, but I think it's really important to add that ignorance itself is extremely isolating. Uh, I, um, you know, if you if you think about how the schools aren't really providing content knowledge or not really satisfying natural curiosity for young children they're just off on this you know this uh kind of indoctrination routine with all of these uh you know gender theory and uh gender well, ideology look what they're doing to parents who stand up for traditional family or parental rights well, they're, they're calling them bad names the fbi is breaking down their doors or investigating them mm -hmm. they're sending a tax squad to a christian pastor who opposes this lgbtq propaganda I don't know yeah. how much worse it could get than this on the on the Biden. It's gotten so terrible. So your book is called The Weaponization of Loneliness. Yeah. How tyrants stoke our fears of isolation to silence, divide and conquer us. And you explain how dictators from the French Revolution to even to today, whether it's here or in China, aim to atomize us in order to control us and how it's in violation, basically, of our need to connect with others.
and our fear of social rejection. Michael Savage, a host like no other. Are there any further thoughts that you would like to add at this time, Stella? Well, the term weaponization, I don't know that I, uh, you know, clarified that, but uh, weaponization of loneliness basically means exploiting that primal fear of ostracism, using it to trigger the conformity impulse that will allow these bad agendas to go forward and turn into bad policies. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I also want to add, you said, oh, wow, it sounds so hopeless. (laughs) And, you know, we do have a lot of work to do. There's no question about that. Things that, you know, it's a tall order getting back to, um, you know, when we understood and appreciated uh, our rights as individuals under the, you know, the Bill of Rights or the First Amendment right to free speech. And um, and I think the key is understanding, first of all, that free speech is a use it or lose it proposition. It's hard to speak out a lot of times, but even one on one, if you can gently express what you believe quite often, you might be surprised that you've emboldened a like minded thinker. Um, We don't really necessarily know what other people believe in this kind of an environment when everybody's shut up and everybody's fearful of opening their mouths. And then the other thing is you can't have a private sphere of life without freedom of expression. You can't have relationships without freedom of expression, period. And so this is really a war on the private sphere of life. And it's an old war. It goes back like to the French Revolution and the Bolsheviks and Mao and so on. There's nothing new about wow. it. It's almost like the default, um, you know, position of, uh, you know, human interaction. Uh, and the totalitarian impulse is like almost uh, like a it, it, they have a sort of a superhuman stamina in pushing these, like the great reset and all these. I know they don't um, stop. They're relentless. It's wherever you turn. This social conformity comes at me everywhere I look. mm -hmm. And it's so much worse today than at any time in my many years because of social media. And only since uh, Musk took over Twitter, have I seen people expressing themselves again more or less freely. Mm-hmm. I mean, my audience went up by 10%. I these shadow banners who are watching, whether through algorithms or they had that many people could watch certain people who were prominent with a large following and literally control how many statements I could make of what I could say, how many could reply with shadow blocking, shadow banning. These were th- these people were so bad, Stella. They hired third world people who came from countries without a First Amendment to control those of us with the First Amendment. So now Musk takes over Twitter and they're calling him every bad name under the sun because he wants to take people out of Twitter prison. This is how bad this has become. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen with Twitter and Musk and all of that. I, you know, nobody guess, but it's extremely important in my view that we guard and actually try to cultivate um, real life conversations that are open. Uh, I think people are really hungering for that. Uh, people are starving for for that, but they're too scared. And, um, and you know, it, it's it's just a matter of uh, mm. building that 
that private sphere that's been under attack. I think you probably, I don't know if you're aware of that essay. I bring this, I bring it up a lot in my book and I've brought it up in other interviews. Uh, an essay, very famous essay written in 1978, Sami's underground essay by Václav Havel, who was a dissident in Soviet Czechoslovakia. Later, after the Berlin Wall fought, fell, he became the president of the Czech Republic. But it was called The Power of the Powerless. And his central point it was that all of our real power, and this is why power elites are after uh, our, our personal relationship, all of our real power comes from that private sphere. It comes from family, faith communities, friendships, real community. And if if that can be, um, you know, if that can be cultivated and it, it can ripple out and create uh, a cascade of freedom. Uh, but it has to start when you speak as you're saying this, the power of the powerless by Pavel. I remember reading it years and years ago. I'm thinking again of the school board meetings mm. where the community actually gets together and says, no, you're not teaching my child that they're no good because they're white. No, you're not teaching my children to become transgender. And they're considered the enemies of the school board and they call the police to throw them out of there. Right. This is out of a totalitarian state. Right. What is going on? under this country in this country right now. So the last question, I think that we could wrap it up with. You've studied this much more intently than I have. I intuitively have lived with this my whole life, which is why I create created the Savage Nation and radio show 26 years. Why I still do podcasts when I don't need to. It's my way of communicating mm -hmm. why I'm on social media talking to phantoms, tilting at windmills. Actually, every time I do it, I say, you know, Michael, you're really tilting at windmills here. They're not real. I mean, they may be real people, but you're tilting at windmills again. There's no humanity there. Nothing. The humanity is missing. What's the hope for the country? Well, the hope for the country is that people are waking up. I mean, you know, when you have parents called domestic terrorists uh, by the administration, uh, you, you know, they I don't really see them shirking. I mean, you know, they are uh, infuriated. Uh, I think they're more agitated now than before. Yes. I think. And uh, that's a hopeful sign. Uh, you know, like, who the hell are you to call me a domestic terrorist? Because I want to raise my own child. And I, uh, you know, I don't want you telling me that, you know, you're going to, quote, parent my child in school. So uh, this, you know, this really. Uh, but it also has the effect of. Uh, clarifying to us how important that private sphere is these school boards i mean they're like robots if you've ever i've spoken before school boards before i mean they and and you know the, especially in you know these blue areas but they're all they all just kind of sit there like uh zombies really i mean they'll shut you off they'll shut off your mic well stella morabato the book is the weaponization of loneliness I do remember that you were with us. <laughs> I remember the first time we talked now. Well, Stella, thank you for your remarkable work. Well, thank you. It's a big topic. It's a true topic. And I wouldn't say it's a hopeless topic. You've given me some idea that I need to, you know, sometimes I say to myself, I'm making it very personal. Why am I still doing this? Why do I get up and tilt at windmills every day and still do podcasts? Why do I still do social media? What am I doing it for? And the answer is because there's no other way of life for me. I've been so much an outsider standing up 
to authority my whole life. I've always been a rebel, I guess. And when I say rebel, it's not rebel for no reason. It's like rebel with a cause, not rebel without a cause. Yeah. And I would say that all of us have to become rebels with a cause. That's, yep. I think you stated it right there. Thank you so much for your work. I appreciate it very much. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Keep fighting. Keep fighting. And thank you. Okay. You too. Bye now. Bye-bye. Rebels with a cause. Well, thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and you'll learn something from it. We have about 400 other episodes available for you to listen to absolutely free. You can go back into our vast library of podcasts and listen to any one of them at any time. And remember this, if you want to listen to my podcast ad-free, sign up for the Savage Premium Membership and get access to ad-free podcasts as well as some premium content from our Savage Archives. How do you sign up for those ad-free podcasts? Please visit michaelsavage.com for a link. Again, thank you for your listenership. This is Michael Savage.